Welcome to the Ramayan Podcast, a weekly podcast featuring an episodic reading in English of St. Tulsidas's version of the epic Ramayan. With this episode, we begin the second book of Ramayan, Ayodhyakand. May he in whose lap shines forth the daughter of the mountain king, who carries the celestial stream on his head, on whose brow rests the crescent moon, whose throat holds poison, and whose breast is the support of a huge serpent, and who is adorned by the ashes on his body. May that chief of gods, the lord of all, the destroyer of the universe, the omnipresent Shiva, the moon-like Shankara, ever protect me. May the splendor of Sri Ram's lotus-like face, which neither grew brighter at the prospect of his being installed on the throne of Ayodhya, nor was dimmed by the painful experience of exile in the woods, ever bring sweet felicity to me. I adore Sri Ram, the lord of Raghu's race, whose limbs are as dark and soft as a blue lotus, who has Sita enthroned on his left side, and who holds in his hands a mighty arrow and a graceful bow. Cleansing the mirror of my mind with the dust from the lotus-like feet of the revered Guru, I sing Sri Ram's untarnished glory that bestows the four rewards of human life. From the day Sri Ram returned home duly married, there was new festivity and jubilant music every day. The fourteen spheres were like huge mountains on which clouds in the shape of meritorious deeds poured showers of joy. The water thus discharged formed into gorgeous rivers of affluence, success, and prosperity that rose in spate and flowed into the ocean of Ayodhya. The men and women of the city were like jewels of a fine quality, bright, priceless, and charming in every way. The splendor of the capital was beyond description. It seemed as if the Creator's workmanship had been exhausted there. Gazing on the moon-like face of Sri Ramachandra, the citizens were all happy in every way. All the mothers with their companions and maids were delighted to see the creeper of their heart's desire bear fruit. The king was particularly enraptured when he saw or heard of Sri Ram's beauty, goodness, amiability, and genial disposition. All cherished in their heart a common desire and said in their prayer to the great Lord Shiva, would that the king in his own lifetime appoint Sri Ram as his regent. One day the chief of Raghu sat with all his court in the state assembly hall. Himself the embodiment of all virtues, the king was overjoyed to hear of Sri Ram's fair renown. Every monarch solicited his favor, and the very guardians of the world cultivated his friendship while respecting his wishes. In all the three spheres of the universe, and in all time, past, present, or future, none could be found so abundantly blessed as Dasharat. Of him who had for his son Rama, the root of all bliss, whatever might be said would fall short of the truth. The king casually took a mirror in his hand, and looking at his face in the mirror, set his crown straight. The hair beside his ears had turned gray. It seemed as if old age were whispering into his ears, O king, make Rama your regent, and thereby realize the object of your life and birth in this world. Entertaining this idea in his mind, and finding an auspicious day and a suitable opportunity, the king communicated it to his guru, Vashishta, with his body thrilling all over with emotion, and his mind filled with rapture. Said the king, Listen, O chief of sages, Rama is now accomplished in every way. Servants and ministers, nay, all the people of the city and others who are either my enemies or friends or neutrals, hold Rama as dear as I do. 
It seems your benediction itself has incarnated in his lovely form. What more, my lord, all the Brahmins and their families cherish the same love for him as you do. Those who place on their head the dust from the Guru's feet acquire mastery, as it were, over all fortune. No one has realized it as I have done. I have obtained everything by adoring the holy dust from your feet. Now there remains only one longing in my heart, and that too will be realized by your grace, my lord. The sage was delighted to perceive his artless devotion and said, O king, give me your commands. King, your very name and glory grant all one's desires. The object of your heart's desire, O jewel of monarchs, is accomplished even before you entertain the desire. When the king was assured in his heart of the guru being so favorably disposed in every way, he cheerfully said in gentle tones, My lord, let Ram be invested with regal powers. Pray command me so that necessary preparations may be set afoot. Let this happy event take place during my lifetime so that all people may attain the reward of their eyesight. By the Lord's blessing, Shiva has allowed everything to pass smoothly. This is the only longing that I have in my mind. Then I will not mind whether this body survives or not, so that I may not have to repent afterwards. The sage was pleased to hear these agreeable words of Dasharan, which were the very fountain of felicity and joy. He said, Listen, O king, aversion to Sri Ram makes one repent, while his adoration is the only means of soothing the agony of one's heart. Nay, he follows like a shadow. Wherever there is unadulterated love, the same Lord Sri Ram has been born as a son to you. O King, let there be no delay, and make every preparation quickly. That day itself is auspicious and full of blessings when Ram is proclaimed regent. The King returned rejoicing to his palace, and summoned his servants and counselors, including Sumantra. They bowed their heads, saying, Victory to you, may you live long. And the King placed before them the most auspicious proposal. If this proposal finds favor with you all, install Sri Ram on the throne with a cheerful heart. The counselors were glad to hear these agreeable words, which fell like a shower on the young plant of their desire. The ministers prayed with joined palms. May you continue to live for millions of years, O sovereign of the world. You have thought out a good plan, which is a source of happiness to the whole world. Therefore, Lord, make haste and lose no time. The king was pleased to hear the encouraging words of his ministers. It looked as if a growing creeper had attained the support of a strong bough. Said the king, Whatever orders the great sage Vashishta may be pleased to give in connection with Sri Ram's coronation should be promptly carried out. The great sage Vashishta gladly said in soft accents, Fetch water from all principal sacred places. And then he enumerated by name a number of auspicious objects, such as herbs, roots, flowers, fruits, leaves, chauris, deerskins, and draperies of various kinds, including countless varieties of woolen and silken textiles, jewels and numerous other articles of good omen, which were considered useful in this world for the coronation of a king. Detailing all the procedure laid down in the Vedas, he said, Erect canopies of all sorts in the city, and transplant in the streets on all sides trees of the mango, areca nut, and plantain with fruits. Paint beautiful designs on the floors, filling them with costly jewels, and tell the people to decorate the bazaar promptly. Worship Lord Ganesh and your preceptor, as well as the tutelary deity, and render service in every form to the Brahmins, the very gods on earth. Prepare flags and banners, festal arches and vases, as well as horses, chariots, and elephants. 
Bowing to these orders of the great sage Vashishta, all concerned applied themselves to their own work. With whatever duty the great sage charged any man, the latter accomplished it so promptly as if it had been done by him beforehand. The king adored Brahmins, holy men, and gods, and performed auspicious rites for the sake of Sri Ram's welfare. As soon as the delightful news of Sri Ram's installation reached the ears of the people, the whole of Ayodhya resounded with festal music. Good omens manifested themselves in the person of Sri Ram and Sita. Their graceful lucky limbs began to throb. Experiencing a thrill of joy, they lovingly said to one another, The omens prognosticate Bharat's return. Many days have passed, and our hearts long to meet him. Auspicious omens assure us of our meeting with a beloved friend, and in this world there is no one so dear to us as Bharat. The good omens can thus have but one meaning. Sri Ram anxiously remembered his half-brother Bharat day and night, even as a turtle has its heart fixed on its eggs. That very time the ladies of the palace were delighted to hear the most auspicious news, even as the waves of the ocean commenced their lovely sport on perceiving the waxing moon. Those who broke the news were richly rewarded with ornaments and costumes. With their bodies thrilling over with emotion and hearts full of rapture, all the queens started preparing festal vases. Queen Sumitra painted with colored meal lovely diagrams in various charming designs and filled them with jewels. Overwhelmed with delight, Sri Ram's mother, Kausalya, summoned the Brahmins and loaded them with gifts. She worshipped village deities and other gods and nagas, and vowing them further offerings, said to them, In your mercy grant me a boon which may ensure Sri Ram's welfare. Moon-faced and fawn-eyed ladies sang festal strains in voices as sweet as the notes of a cuckoo. Men and women rejoiced in their heart to hear of Sri Ram's installation on the throne, and thinking God to be favorably disposed toward them, all began to make preparations. The king then called Vashishta and sent him to Sri Ram's apartments for tendering opportune advice. The moment the lord of Raghus, Sri Ram, heard of the guru's arrival, he repaired to the door and bowed his head at his feet. Reverently offering him water to wash his hands, he ushered the sage and paid him honor by worshipping him in the sixteen prescribed modes. Then clasping his feet with Sita, Sri Ram spoke with his lotus palms joined in prayer. A master's visit to his servant's house is the root of all blessings, and a panacea for all evils. Yet it would have been more fitting, my lord, for the master to have lovingly sent for the servant and charged him with a duty, for such is the right course. Since, however, my lord has laid aside his authority and showed his affection to me by calling on me, my house has been hallowed today. I am ready to do what I am bid, holy sir, for a servant is benefited only by serving his master. On hearing these words, steeped in affection as they were, the sage applauded the chief of Raghu's Sri Ram and said, It is but meet, O Rama, that you should say so, the ornament of the solar race that you are. Extolling Sri Ram's goodness, amiability, and noble disposition, the Lord of Sages, Vashishta, said, thrilling over with emotion, The king has made preparations for the installation ceremony. He would invest you with regal powers, Rama. You should observe religious austerity today, so that God may bring this affair to a happy conclusion. Having admonished him in this way, the guru returned to the king, while Sri Ram felt uneasy in his heart and said to himself, my brothers and myself were all born together, and together have we dined, slept, and played in our childhood. The piercing of our earlobes, our investiture with the sacred thread, 
wedding, and other ceremonies have been gone through together. The only unseemly practice in this spotless line is that the eldest should be installed on the throne to the exclusion of his younger brothers. May this loving and graceful expression of regret on the part of the Lord drive away all suspicion from the mind of his devotee. On that very occasion came Lakshman steeped in love and rapture. Sri Ram, who delighted Raghu's race even as the moon delights a lily flower, greeted him with endearing words. There was a sound of music of various kinds, and the rejoicing in the city was beyond words. All prayed for Bharat's return from his maternal uncle's house, and said to one another, Would that Bharat came with expedition and obtained the reward of his eyes. In every bazaar, street, house, lane, and place of resort, men and women talked to one another. When will that blessed hour start tomorrow, during which God will fulfill our desire, when with Sita beside him Sri Ram will take his seat on the throne of gold, and when the object of our desire will be accomplished? They all said, When will the morrow come? While the wicked gods prayed that some trouble might brew in the meantime. The rejoicing that was going on in Ayodhya did not please them, even as a moonlit night is not liked by a thief. Invoking Sharada, the gods supplicated her, and laying hold of her feet, fell at them again and again. Perceiving our grave calamity, O mother, manipulate things in such a way today that Sri Ram may retire into the forest, relinquishing his throne, and the object of us immortals may be wholly accomplished. Hearing this prayer of the divinities, Goddess Sharada stood still and was grieved at the thought that she was going to play the same role with reference to the people of Ayodhya as a wintry night does with respect to a bed of lotuses. Seeing her downcast, the god spoke again in a suppliant tone, Mother, not the least blame will attach to you, for the Lord of Raghuz is above sorrow and joy alike. You are fully acquainted with Sri Ram's glory. As for the people, every embodied soul is subject to pleasure and pain according to its fate. Therefore you should go to Ayodhya for the good of the celestials. Clasping her feet again and again, they exerted great pressure on her until she yielded and set out, considering the gods as mean-minded. She said to herself, Though their abode is on high, their doings are mean. They cannot see others' prosperity. Again reflecting on the role she was destined to perform in the days to come, when worthy poets would seek her favor, she came with a cheerful heart to the capital of Dasharat, like the intolerably evil influence of a planet. Now Kaikei, Bharat's mother, had a dull-witted servant-maid, Mantara by name. Having perverted her reason and making her a receptacle of ill repute, the goddess of speech returned to her abode. Mantara saw the city decorated and festal music melodiously playing. She therefore asked people, What is all this rejoicing about? When she heard of Sri Ram's coming installation, she felt distressed in her heart. That evil-minded and low-born woman pondered how mischief might be created overnight, even as a wily Bila woman who has seen a honeycomb hanging from a tree schemes how to get hold of the honey. Pulling a long face, she approached Bharat's mother. "'What makes you look so grave?' the queen smilingly asked. She made no answer, but only heaved a deep sigh, and adopting the way of woman shed crocodile tears." said the queen, laughing, "'You are a most saucy girl. What I suspect, therefore, is that Lakshman has taught you a lesson.' Even then the most wicked servant-maid would not speak, and merely hissed like a cobra. 
Apprehensive of mischief, the queen said to her, How is it that you do not speak? I hope Raman, his royal father, Lakshman, Bharat, and Ripudaman, Shatrugna, are all well. The humpbacked woman, Mantara, was pained at heart to hear those words. Why should anyone, O oh mother, give me a lesson, and on whose strength shall I be cheeky? Who is happy today except Ram, whom the king is going to so invest with regal powers? Providence has turned most favorable to Kosalya. Seeing this, she cannot contain the pride of her bosom. Why not go and see for yourself all the splendor, the sight of which has agitated my mind? Your son is away, while you are complacent under the notion that your lord is under your thumb. You are excessively fond of sleeping on a cushioned bed, and are unable to detect the deceitful cunning of the king. Hearing these words, yet knowing her malicious mind, the queen angrily said, Keep quiet now. If you ever speak thus again, expert as you are in sowing seeds of discord in a family, I will have your tongue pulled out. The one-eyed, the lame, and the humpback know these to be perverse and wicked, more so if they come of the fair sex, and particularly those belonging to the menial class, said Bharat's mother, and smiled. Oh, sweet-tongued girl, I have said all this to you by way of advice, otherwise I cannot even dream of being angry with you. That day alone will be auspicious and a bestower of good fortune when your words come to be true. The eldest brother should be the Lord, and the younger one's his servant. Such is the blessed custom prevailing in the solar race. If Sri Ram's inauguration is really taking place tomorrow, ask of me, my friend, what pleases your mind, and I will grant it. By his innate disposition, Ram loves all his mothers as dearly as Koshalya. He is particularly fond of me. I have had occasion to test his love. Should God in his mercy vouchsafe to me a human birth again, may Ram and Sita be my son and daughter-in-law respectively. Ram is dearer to me than life. How is it that you have got perturbed at the news of his inauguration? I adjure you in Bharat's name, tell me the truth, putting away all deceit and reservation. Let me know the reason why you should grieve on an occasion of rejoicing. I have had all my ambitions fulfilled as a result of my speaking only once. I shall now speak again with another tongue. My wretched head surely deserves to be smashed, since you are offended even at my well-meaning words. Those alone who speak unctuous words, minding not what is true and what is false, are your favorites, while I am disagreeable to you. From this day onward I too will utter only that which is palatable to my mistress, or else will keep mum all the twenty-four hours. God has given me a misshapen body and made me dependent on others. One must reap as one has sowed, and one must get what one has given. Whoever may be the ruler, I lose nothing thereby. For shall I cease to be a servant and become a queen now? Damnable is my nature in that I cannot bear to see harm come to you. That is why I just broached the topic. But it was a great blunder on my part. Therefore, pardon me, venerable lady. Hearing these pregnant and agreeably deceitful words, the queen was a woman with an unstable mind and was dominated by the celestial Maya, reposed her faith in an enemy, mistaking her for a friend. Again and again the queen politely questioned Mantara, hypnotized as she was by the latter's guileful words like a doe fascinated by the music of a Bila woman. Her mind was changed according to the degree of fate, and the servant-maid was pleased to find her plan succeed. She replied, while you persist in questioning me, I am afraid to open my lips, since you have given me the name of a mischief-maker. 
thus working up the queen's faith and manipulating her according to her own liking in every way, Mantara, who spelt disaster for Ayodhya like the evil influence exerted by the planet Saturn for a period of seven and a half years, according to Indian astrology, then spoke. You just said now, O queen, that Sita and Ram were dear to you, and that you had endeared yourself to Ram. This assertion of yours is true. This is, however, a thing of the past. Those days have now gone by. When the tide turns, even friend becomes foe. The sun fosters the family of lotuses, but in the absence of water it burns them to ashes. Your co-wife, Kosalya, would strike at your very root, protect it by means of a good fence in the form of a remedy. You are free from anxiety on the strength of your husband's love, and know him to be under your sway. The king, however, is malicious of mind, though sweet of tongue, while you, you possess a guileless nature. Rama's mother, Kosalya, is clever and deep. Finding a suitable opponent, she has turned it to her account. You must know it is at the suggestion of Rama's mother that the king has sent away Bharat to his maternal grandfather. She says to herself, All my other co-wives serve me well. Only Bharat's mother, you, is proud. Because of her influence with her lord, it is therefore, O oh mother, that you rankle in Kosalya's heart. But she is too crafty to disclose her mind. The king is particularly fond of you, but due to the jealousy to which a co-wife is naturally subject. Kosalya cannot tolerate it. That is why, by resorting to machinations and winning over the king, she has prevailed on him for to fix a date for Ram's installation on the throne. The inauguration of Ram is in accordance with the traditions of the family. It's liked by all, and it's quite to my taste. I, however, shudder to think of the consequences may heaven so ordain that this mischief may recoil on her own head. Inventing and injecting many a mischievous formula, Mantra put the queen on the scent and told her a hundred and one stories of co-wives so as to foment her jealousy. As fate would have it, the queen felt assured in her head of Mantra's fidelity. Adjuring her by her own life, she questioned Mantra once more. What is it that you now inquire about? It is strange that you should not understand things even now. Even a quadruped knows what is good or bad for it. Preparations have been going on for the last fortnight while you have just got the news from me today. I get food and clothing under your tutelage, hence I cannot be blamed for speaking the truth. If I tell a lie, giving it the color of truth, God will punish me for the same. Should Ram's inauguration take place tomorrow, God will have sown the seed of adversity for you. I swear, and I tell you most emphatically, O lady, that you have been discarded now as a fly from a cup of milk. If you and your son accept the role of servants, then alone will you be allowed to stay in the house, and in no other circumstance. Khadru, the progenitress of the serpent race, persecuted her co-wife Vinata. So will Kosalya tyrannize over you. Bharat will rot in prison where Lakshman will be Ram's lieutenant. Hearing these unpleasant remarks, Kekaya's daughter, Kaikei, shriveled with fear and could not utter a word. Her body was wet with perspiration and shook like a plantain stalk. The humpback then bit her tongue, for fear lest the gloomy picture drawn by her might break Kaikei's heart. Telling her one after another many a story of wiles, Mantara comforted the queen and asked her to be of good cheer. At last the tide turned, and Kaikei conceived a fondness for mischief.
She applauded a heron, mistaking it for a swan. Listen, O Mantra, what you say is quite true. My right eye ever throbs, and I have an evil dream every night, but in my folly I did not tell you. I cannot help it, my friend. I am so guileless by nature, I cannot distinguish a friend from a foe. Never to this day have I done an evil turn to anybody during my ascendancy. I wonder for what offense has Providence subjected me to such terrible suffering all at once. I would fain go and spend the rest of my life at my father's, but would on no account serve as co-wife so long as there is life in me. For him whom heaven allows to survive as a dependent of an enemy, death is preferable to life. The queen uttered many such words of despondency. At this the humpback resorted to the wily ways of a woman. Why should you speak in this strain, indulging in self-deprecation? Your happiness and good luck will ever be on the increase. Whoever has contemplated such gross mischief to you shall eventually reap its fruit. Ever since I heard of this plot, my lady, I have felt no appetite during the day, and have had no wink of sleep at night. I consulted the astrologers, and they declared in positive terms, Barret shall be the king. This much is certain. If you act up to it, good lady, I will offer a suggestion to you. The king is under an obligation to you. At your suggestion I would throw myself down a well, and can even forsake my son and husband. When you tell me to do something in view of my dire distress, why should I not comply with it in my own interest? Winning over Kaikei and treating her as an offering accepted for sacrifice, the humpback whetted the knife of trickery on the stone of her heart. The queen, however, like a sacrificial beast who nibbles the green turf, did not foresee the impending calamity. Agreeable to hear, yet painful in consequence, were the words she spoke. It seemed as if she were administering honey mixed with poison. Said the maidservant, Do you or do you not remember the incident you once told me, my lady? You have in reserve with the king a couple of boons that he once promised you. Ask for them today, and soothe your heart. Bestow sovereignty on your son, and abode in the forest on Ram, and rob your co-wives of all their joy. When the king swears by Ram, ask the boons only then, so that the former may not go back on his word. The scheme will fail if this night is allowed to pass. Cherish my words as dearer than life. Having thus hatched her very cruel design against the queen, the wretch said, Betake yourself to the sulking room. Manage the whole affair discreetly, and be not too ready to believe. Holding the humpback dear as life, the queen applauded her uncommon shrewdness again and again. I have no such friend as you in the whole world, she said. You have served as a prop to one who was drifting along in a stream. If God fulfills my heart's desire tomorrow, I will cherish you, my dear, as the apple of my eye. Thus lavishing every term of endearment on her maidservant, Kaikei retired to the sulking room. Discord was the seed and the servant Mantara the rainy season, while the evil mind of Kaikei served as the soil. Fed by the water of wiliness, the seed took root and sprouted with the two boons as its leaves, and will eventually bear the fruit of adversity. Gathering about her every token of resentment, Kaikei lay down on the floor in the sulking room. While enjoying sovereignty, she was betrayed by her wicked mind. There was a great flutter in the gynaceum as well as in the city. Nobody had any inkling of this evil design. 
And that brings us to the close of this episode of Ramayan. Please join us next time. Jai Sitaram.